0: First Timothy chapter three. As we continue through the study of First Timothy, First Timothy chapter three, we're going to endeavor to do the whole chapter tonight. We'll see if it happens and takes place. You guys think I can do it? All right. Hey, you guys are really enthusiastic for a cold, snowy night. You've been inside all day, haven't you? I'm out! I'm out of the house! It feels great! So Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that we can just celebrate you and you're worth being enthusiastic about. And we ask that you would really speak to us on this important topic of what a healthy church looks like and what the attributes of a, of a healthy church are. And so, Father, would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of examples of unhealthy church, isn't there? You open up the news, you do a Google search, and you find a man out in California this week. He's 39 years old. He pastors a church there, and he looks like he attempted to go ahead and put a bomb in his ex-girlfriend's house. He got arrested, uh, and they found stuff in his home to, to make a bomb, so he'll go to trial, and we'll see how that comes, but he posted bail, $500,000 in bail in time to be back in the pulpit on Sunday morning. That's pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? One that is very tragic is Isaac Hunter. Some of you may be familiar uh, with his story. He started a church in 2002, and the church was one of the fastest-growing churches in central Florida. He started as a young man in his early 20s, and in December of this year, he committed suicide, and in 2012, he had to resign from pastoring because he was caught in adultery, was someone that worked on his staff. And his life just completely fell apart from that point forward. And then he committed suicide as a 36-year-old man. And as I was reading about his life this week, my heart just broke for him. Because I know that he didn't intend to be in the place that he ended up. To be in the place of adultery. Probably never thought that he would take his life. Had young children. And there's comments that his children made about his life. And I bring these things to our attention because it causes this section to really stand out. We're going to read about from God's word, what are the attributes of, of a healthy church? What are the things that are really important in the life of a pastor? What what should you be looking for in your spiritual leaders? We find this in this chapter. At the end of chapter three, I'd like to focus your attention if you have your your Bible, verse 15. It's the Theme verse of this section it says but if I'm delayed I write to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God the pillar in the ground of truth the church is important because it's God's house it's God's possession. It's the church of the living God. Its function in society is to be the pillar and the ground of truth, to be the pillar and the foundation of truth to hold to the word of God. This subject about the church is one that I'm passionate about because God's passionate about the church. He says that we're the bride of Christ. There couldn't be a greater compliment to the people of God than to be the bride of Christ. He says that we're the body of Christ. Think about that for just a moment. We're his hands, we're his feet, we're his body, we're his expression in this lost and dying world. The promise that Jesus gives to the church is that he will build his church. That's his commitment to the church of God. And the church has problems. Church history is ugly, but what we can look at is God's faithfulness. Here we are almost 2,000 years later still gathering as the people of God. And the people of God are gathering all over the world this weekend, worshiping the one true and living God. Our church will thrive. Our church will be healthy. Any church will be healthy as they heed these very practical instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So let's look in verse 1 this is a faithful saying. Paul, as a spiritual father, gets the attention of Timothy a few times in this letter and saying, this is a good saying. This is a faithful saying. This is something that you can hang your hat on. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So first, what is a bishop? Um, Anything to do with chess? Nope. It's an overseer, an elder, or a shepherd. Literally, the word bishop, it means overseer, to watch over, to be responsible. It's also come to be synonymous with elder and Shepherd. It's caring for, it's loving, it's laying your life down for God's people. Bishop from a biblical sense doesn't match bishop from necessarily a religious sense. If you come from a particular background and you, you hear the phrase, you know, bishop so-and-so, that's not the idea behind this word. It's one of a pastor, an overseer, an elder, or a shepherd. Notice in your scriptures, it does say, if a man desires the position of a bishop. If you happened to miss last week's study, you gotta go back and listen to it. Whether on the church app or the church's website or still picking up, a CD and popping it in and listening to it because we really spent time laying out why an elder needs to be a man. But it's not just any man. There's qualifications. There's attributes that are given. And that's what we find in these first seven verses is the attributes of an elder. So it does need to be a man. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. First, there's something that's needed in order for a man to serve God's people in this way. He's got to want to do it. (laughs) And I know that that's mind-blowing, but the reason to be an elder or a pastor in a church is not because your grandma wanted you to. (laughs) Or your mom said, hey, I've always wanted to have a son that would be a pastor, so You're my last son. You you need to do it. You can't be guilted into it. You can't be shamed into it. There should be a desire for a person, for a man that wants to serve in God's kingdom. And that's important. You know, if someone doesn't have that desire to pastor, that desire to shepherd, that desire to be involved in God's people's life, then it's probably not God's calling on their life. Now some of you may be praying about being a pastor or being an elder inside of a church and you do have that desire. Men, you do have that God-given stirring that's happening inside of you and you may feel that there's something wrong with having the desire. Not necessarily. What does it say here in verse 1? You've got to have that desire. You've got to want to desire to do that work. Where we need to check ourselves is, is it selfish ambition? Is it for God's glory or is it something to do with myself? And also we notice in this verse to desire a good work. It is going to be work. It's going to be good old-fashioned work. Maybe your perception of elders and pastors is, All they really do is play golf all day, and it's got to be a pretty easy thing to be able to to go into. It's a very rewarding thing to go into, but there's a lot of hard work that's found inside of the pastorate. Spurgeon put it this way, great preacher from the past. He says, what is the issue or what is the use of a lazy minister? He's no good either to the world, to the church, or to himself He's a dishonor to the noblest profession that can be bestowed upon the sons of men. So God says it's going to be work. You're going to work hard inside of this office of being an elder, a pastor, or a shepherd. And it has nothing to do with the paycheck. There's some elders that are never paid. There's some that are blessed to be able to receive a a wage from the church to focus on the people of God. But paycheck or no, it's going to be good work. It's going to be noble work, but it will be hard work. Now we get into the godly character of this bishop. A bishop then must be blameless. So as we go through this list, you'll find very quickly that God's looking for character when he's looking for men to lead his church. And I think this is very important when leaders are being raised up inside of the church. It's unlike the business world. The business world's all about skills ability. And if you have skills and you have ability and you can get the job done, then you have the job. But that's not the number one thing for elders inside of the church of God. There is the ability factor, but the position should not be one that's received just through skill. It has to have godly character. I think you've all seen it inside of the church. When someone's very gifted, very talented, very Charismatic, but they're lacking godly character. What happens in the long run? It comes to the hurt and the ruin of the church. And the church should take the time. Those making those decisions on who's going to be the elder should take the time to look for that godly character. And so the first thing that's listed here is there to be blameless. Now, this isn't perfection. You're never going to meet a perfect pastor. You shouldn't put a pastor up on a pedestal. We're all sinners, absolutely. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, follow Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's perfect. So what does blameless mean? It means above reproach, nothing to take hold of. You should be able to look at an elder's life, as an overseer's life, and not be able to find anything that you can take hold of to bring against him. You shouldn't be able to find something on his computer of a. of a pornographic nature. It's inappropriate. You you shouldn't find him flirting around with somebody who's not his spouse. That's the idea here, that there's there's nothing that you can put your blame upon. There's nothing that you can take hold of. The second thing about the character is the husband of one wife. This is a a one-woman man. He should be totally devoted to his wife. Now, does this mean that an elder has to be married? No, because we know Paul was single, right? We know Jesus was single. So it's not a requirement that an elder has to be married, but he should be completely of sexual purity. If he is single, he's devoted in sexual purity. If he's married, he's devoted to his wife. An issue that... Paul would be dealing with and Timothy would be dealing with was polygamy. That was something that was happening in the culture and this would then deal with polygamy, wouldn't it? If a guy has two or three wives, he wasn't in the place that he should be leading the church, that he should be the elder of the church. This is something that we find when we do ministry in Uganda because many of the men do practice polygamy. It's a part of their culture and so it's something that they have to wrestle with. Maybe you've wrestled with polygamy. Probably not. But actually, I have met a man who tried to convince me biblically of of polygamy, right from this church. He no longer goes to this church, but he used to go to this church. And you can look at Abraham's life, and he had multiple wives, didn't he? And you could say, well, God doesn't come out right against Abraham and say, Hey, you shouldn't have these multiple wives. And you go through so many of these characters of the Old Testament, and they did practice polygamy, and it never, ever went well for them. Never, never went well. I was reading about Jacob, and my heart kind of goes out to him because his father in law, Laban, tricked him, but he ended up marrying sisters. I mean, that's got to be the worst polygamous relationship that could possibly be. the sisters started arguing over who's going to have Jacob. And Jacob didn't put up a fight with that. But you see the atmosphere of the home is just crazy as you go through, through Genesis. And all these kids are, are born. And it's talk about a dysfunctional family. So you have a hard time building a biblical case for polygamy. Because it never went well for those in the Old Testament. And God's very clear here when it comes to pastoring a church. It should be a one woman man. This is an issue. I think verse 7 hits the primary pitfalls for a pastor and really for any person. And it's been said to pastors, and it's a good warning, you need to be careful of women, money, and pride. And all three are listed here. How many great pastors have brought shame to Jesus Christ and hurt the body of Christ because they've entered into a relationship with a woman that's not glorifying to God? One of the things that that we've put in place here for our pastoral staff is we want to try to put some some hedges in place. We don't counsel women as pastors here at the church. One of the things that we believe is most effective is men should counsel men and women should counsel women. That's a biblical model for discipleship and for counseling. And so we will meet with a gal in the fellowship one time, usually up in the cafe, not in our offices. If it is in the office, it's it's with the door open. Why? Because we know what has been the Achilles heel of pastors. They usually start counseling somebody a gallon in the fellowship, there's an emotional attachment that takes place, and before you know it, you have adultery that has taken place. We don't travel alone. I don't care if I'm going to Salt Lake City, and I'm getting on a plane, and I'm going to have someone pick me up in Salt Lake City. I don't want to leave that door open. That's a hedge that I want to place around me. There's a book called Hedges by Jerry Jenkins, and he's a genius. He says, if you're never alone with someone who's not your spouse, you can't commit adultery. You following me on that? And so it's something that is, needs to be thought through in the life of a pastor, but it's something that needs to be thought through in all of our lives. The commission here to an elder is to be a one-woman man, the husband of one wife. The next that's listed is to be temperate. This is self-controlled, not given to extremes. Pastors deal with conflict. Pastors deal with messes. When do you call a pastor? when things are challenging in your life, when maybe there's even conflict inside of, of the church. So if a pastor isn't self-controlled, how can he help to navigate those problems? If he's dealing with the problem and he becomes angry, then he adds to that problem. So to help solve a problem, you can't be a problem. Does that make sense? So you can see why being temperate, not giving over to extremes, when everybody else is losing their cool, hopefully it's the elders in a church that are staying in a temperate state. This leads into sober-minded. Sober-minded means to be able to think clearly, not giving over to your emotions, not al- allowing your emotions to get the best of you. There's sometimes in the life of an elder or a life of a pastor, you just need to put your head down and you need to keep going. You need to be sober-minded. You can't allow yourself to give in to the criticism. You can't allow yourself to be overcome with your own self-doubt. You just have to keep going. You've got to be sober-minded. You've got to know what God's Word says and keep Moving forward, a very important attribute in the life of an elder. And then good behavior. Again, this is not perfect behavior, but this is orderly. It's in a manner that you would find fitting to be of a pastor. Hospitable. Hospitable. This is warm. This is friendly. I like this illustration about hospitality. A young serviceman and his family were living in a hotel near a military base where they were temporarily assigned. One day, his little girl was playing in the lobby, and a lady looked down on her and said, isn't it too bad you don't have a home? Oh, we do, the child answered. We just don't have a house to put it in. (laughs) Don't you love that? See, hospitality is not just about welcoming people into your home yes it is that that's part of hospitality but hospitality is being warm and friendly to people wherever you go and this is important in the life of an elder in the life of a of a pastor sometimes pastors have a real professor type of personality they're deep thinkers they're great teachers but then when you go to shake their hand it's a bit frosty you know what i'm saying and and they're not given to over to hospitality. And even if you're an introvert as a pastor, even if it's difficult to have those one-on-one conversations, this is something that's to be worked on in the life of an elder because it's so important to be friendly. It's so important to, to smile and to look people in the eyes. I think this is a great attribute for us as believers, right? This is what's really lacking in our culture and society is this kind of warmth and and friendliness. Go to the grocery store and you see the exact opposite and it goes a long ways when you care for people by looking them in the eye, making eye contact, smiling at them, asking them how your day is going. So this is something that as Timothy was looking to find elders inside of the church, he was to be looking for hospitable men. And the last here that we find in verse 2 is able to teach. So there is some ability that's factored into the life of an elder. He should be able to communicate God's word, to teach God's word. In verse 3, not given to wine, not violent. Drunkenness is never appropriate in the life of a pastor. We're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not to be filled with any kind of substance. And so when it says here, not given to wine, it's speaking to this drunkenness. One of the things that elders have to be aware of is causing someone to stumble, right? You know, if you see me out in town and I'm just throwing back a beer and you struggle with alcohol, it's probably going to affect you a little bit more than if you see somebody else having a beer. And so elders, I think, need to be aware of that. There's a a musician that from time to time for years has come and done music here at our church, and she's extremely gifted. And she's very open and public about her testimony, so I'm not sharing anything that she hasn't shared. But she grew up with a really crazy background and got herself in, involved in a lot of partying before she came to know Christ as her Savior. And she got saved, and God did a radical work in her life, and, and she really was able to have drinking uh, be under control and, and was at a place where it wasn't an issue in her life. And then she got involved with a Bible study with a, a bunch of Christians who really were, had a lot of liberty with drinking. And so she got this mindset as a new believer of it's not really a big deal if I drink. The only thing for her is it took her back to a place of drunkenness. And then she struggled for many, many years as an alcoholic before God worked that issue out in her life and restored her to a wonderful place of ministry. And I want us all to really understand this biblically is As a Christian, you do have freedom to drink. We don't want to be legalistic in the sense of having a boundary that's beyond where Scripture is. And if you read Scripture clearly, the issue is two things. Drunkenness and causing someone to stumble. Those are the two things that really need to be dealt with and we need to to think about. And in the life of a pastor, it's much more easy to cause someone to stumble. My dad, as he was a new believer, they were having a small home be built out of town in Southern Oregon, and he was building this home, and he had a freedom to drink a beer. And so he would get done from work and help this contractor build the house, and a lot of times he would, he would bring a beer and say, hey, do you, do you want a beer? My dad would give his friend, this contractor, a beer. Little did he know that alcohol was a huge issue for this guy. He never shared it with my dad. He, that one beer led to then going to the bar getting drunk, and coming home drunk, and having problems with his family. And my dad realized that he was a small part of that. He was a portion of that. He was causing this guy to stumble. So my dad said, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to drink anymore. And you can see why this is important in the life of a pastor, is to not be a drunkard, to not be causing people to stumble. It's something for us all to consider in our lives. We don't want our liberty to cause some, someone else to stumble. not violent, Violence does great damage when a pastor starts treating God's people in an inappropriate way, right? It's not to be involved in the life of a pastor, not greedy for money. You would think that this may not be one that needs to be mentioned, but it seems to creep in to all hearts, and the heart of a pastor is no different And so if you see a man that is lusting after money, he's greedy for money, he longs for money, then he wouldn't be fit to fill this position of an elder. Paul will write later on to Timothy, and he says, if you think godliness is a means to gain, you're wrong. You know, we should never think that living for Christ is a way for us to get stuff that we desire, to to get money. Someone shouldn't ever look at a position of serving as an elder as a way to, to get money. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetousness. Jesus was gentle and meek, wasn't he? But it doesn't mean that he was weak. He was firm. He had power. Meekness is power under control. A great elder is a gentle man. A great elder is a meek man, but not a weak man. Not quarrelsome. An elder shouldn't be somebody who just loves to fight. They may have that bent by their personality, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing God to bring that to a a tame place. Not the person that's saying, well, you're taking this position, so I'm taking that position just because I love to have an argument, (laughs) just because I love to debate, not covetousness. This one really stands out to me. Because it's very easy to be covetous in ministry. It's very easy for covetousness to enter into the heart of a pastor. And it usually goes something like this. Oh, man, they've got so many people going over to their church. I wish I could teach like that. Or, oh, man, they've got such a great radio ministry. They're on in these different cities. Oh, Lord, it would sure be great if you bless me like that. He just gets up and he sneezes and people come to the Lord. (laughs) God, when are you going to ever do that in in my life or click, 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 you know, go on the web and then you go, man, their website rocks and go over here and you're like, ours needs a little bit of work. And before you know it, there's this motivation of covetousness that's right in the midst Of God's church right in the midst of God's people and you can see how damaging that would be contentment is a great thing godliness with contentment is great gain and in serving the Lord and anything that he gives us to do we should always desire for more people to be reached so that they can be in a relationship with God not desiring for more people to be reached so that our ego can be built does that make sense And so we can see how covetousness would be such a dangerous thing. And verse four, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. This word rule, it means to lead. It's a caretaker. It's Christ-like leadership. It's servant leadership. And Where is it to start? It's to start in his home. And again, this isn't a list that you'll ever find a man to be perfect in. This is something that we as pastors are always growing in, but we should be able to look at these things and see that it's a focus to see it's a priority to see these things being attempted to live out and leadership's to start in the home. And again, just to speak in a very transparent and honest way, I think this is where a lot of pastors really get off track because there's always so much great work to be done in the church. And if a pastor's not careful, he won't guard his home life, and he'll give all of his leadership to the church, and he'll never lead at home. And that's the exact opposite of what God wanted. So you have to have boundaries. As a pastor, an elder leader, we all need good godly boundaries in our life, but there's always more work to be done. And so you have to be able to say, okay, I'm sorry, I can't do this because I've got an appointment and that appointment happens to be with my family and I need to go home and be with my family because I need to provide Christ-like leadership in their life. The only way to lead the way verse four is talking about, it takes time. You can't shortchange it. If you don't have time with the family, you can't shortchange the church either. You need to be a hard worker in this role as an elder, but it seems to be the struggle that Pastors will always shortchange their family. They'll always say yes to the ministry while saying no to their family. And what God says no is you first you lead in the home. You serve inside of the home. And if you serve well inside of the home, then you'll serve well inside of the church. We've tried to build this in as a team of pastors here. and We're, we're very thankful to have a team of pastors to be able to work with. I really have a heart for church planters where the pastor's primarily there by himself and with his wife and the kids and they're trying to make the church work or a smaller church and they don't have a team of pastors to work with and it's a real joy to be able to be a part of a team. But we actually take days off as pastors here at this church because one, a Sabbath is biblical and two, there's no way that we're going to lead our families unless we do that. It's good for the pastors and the overall longevity of their life to make sure that they're having time to rest, to connect with the Lord, to lead and be with their family. We try to keep track of each other and say, hey, wait a second, you can't sustain this pace and you need to get out of here and you need to get attention to your family. And I've found this church to be very supportive inside of that. And I think most churches are. Most churches really want their pastors to do well at home. It's so painful for a church to sit through having to discipline their pastor. To, to watch their pastor fail. They want to see the pastor thrive. They want to see the pastor invest in their family. So you'll find that the pastor's here, they'll do something crazy. They'll go on vacation. Isn't that nuts? You know, they, and they get perspective and spend time with the Lord and spend time with their families. And that's that proper balance that, that's needed. That leadership, it's got to be in the home and the children then responding with submission in all reverence. One of the things that I don't think this means is that if a child is rebelling, that an elder is disqualified. That may be the case, but the question is, are they giving the godly leadership? Because anybody can rebel. Anybody true? Anybody can rebel. So it's, are they rebelling because of their own choice? Are they rebelling because the elder, the father, was absent in the family. So if he's providing the proper leadership, that Christ-like leadership in in the home and the child chooses to rebel, that wouldn't be a reason for disqualification. But if you looked into it and you find, no, he's absent in, in the home, then that would be a time for an elder to step back and say, your home's more important and you really haven't been engaged there, so you need to go and be engaged there. And this is hard to put into perspective. I, I'm a little bit lost to, for words in this. Um, and I, I think that sometimes kids that grow up in pastor's homes get a bad rap because for some reason people think that they don't have struggles like any other kid does. And there's a bunch of little pastor's kids running around here. Like we're blessed to have a lot of pastors, so we have a lot of pastor's kids running around. And I think the right way to approach pastor's kids is one, don't call them PKs, you know? That's probably not a good place to start. I remember um, I met a, a senior pastor's wife that I really respected and I said, oh, you're so-and-so's wife. And she said, I'm not so-and-so's wife. This is my name. She's like, I've got a name. You know? She's, she had a real way of saying, like, I'm a real person here, and I, I have an identity. And so that may be a good, good place to start, but then not having different standards for them. I think all the pastor's kids should be held to the same standard as every other kid in, in the church. They shouldn't be able to get away with murder just because they're the pastor's kid, but they also shouldn't have a higher standard than any other kid, you know? Pastor's kids are gonna do dumb stuff just like anybody other kid because they're a kid. And actually, every home is gonna struggle with the same stuff. Like, just because you're a pastor doesn't mean that you're not going to face the same exact challenges at home. And in some ways, that should be a comfort, shouldn't it? Is that, man, this stuff's happening in your home. Guess what? It's happening in my home as well. But what we should be able to look for is an elder who's engaged in his home, who's leading in his home, and his leadership is beginning in his home. In verse five, for if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You know where the best training is for an elder a pastor an overseer is in the home nothing wrong with seminary but you're not going to learn how to lead in seminary you're going to learn how to lead in your home and you can graduate seminary and still not know how to lead and still not give leadership at home seminary is great but that's not what scripture says to be the test to find an elder it's saying are they leading well in the home because if they're lead well in the home then they'll lead well in the church If a pastor's personal finances are in order at home, then you're going to find a church that's finances are in order. It's going to start in the home. So you begin to look at how does he relate financially in the home? How does he relate relationally in the home? How does he relate spiritually in the home? Okay, I see some godly Christ-centered leadership there. Then we found a man that can lead inside of the church of God. Verse 6. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So we've seen the warning with women, we've seen the warning with money, and now we've seen the warning with pride. You don't want to give this position of an elder to a beginner, a new believer, too quickly in case they get puffed up with pride. And I love the way that that's described. That's pride, isn't it? It just begins to puff you up. It's the disease of pride. The only problem with the disease of pride is everybody else realizes you're prideful except for you, right? I've got the disease of pride and it's apparent to everybody else, but I can't see it in my own life. I'm puffed up with pride. Notice what pride does then. It falls in the same condemnation as the devil. So you have a new believer, you have a novice. He becomes an elder, a pastor. God starts to use him. And he starts thinking, it's something to do with me. I I must be doing something right here. Oh, wow, I know why God saved me. I've got all these abilities that I can offer to the kingdom of God. And before you know it, then bam, here comes the destruction. And he falls into the same condemnation as the devil. Write down Luke 10, because there we see Satan falls, doesn't he? And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning because he was puffed up with pride. The disciples in Luke 10 had just come back from their first missionary journey. They were excited about all of the things that God had done. Jesus says, don't rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Don't let pride take hold of your heart and your life. This is very dangerous in the life of a pastor. And the pastoral staff here, we welcome your prayers and all of these things. We're susceptible to all of these things, and the enemy would love to wipe us out. And when pride takes the hold of a heart of a pastor, then much destruction comes after that point. In verse 7, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. An elder should have a good reputation and testimony at the tire store, at the mechanic, at Colorado Springs Utilities, at whoever has his mortgage or where he pays rent on his apartment or or his house, a good testimony outside so that he doesn't fall into the reproach or the snare of the devil. The devil would love to bring reproach against an elder and ultimately against the body of Christ. So those are some things to look for in an elder. So here's some application. You're saying, well, Eric, you really went into all that, but I'm not an elder, right? Right. I'm never going to be an elder. Well, some of you may be. <laughs> God may be calling some of you men to be an elder or be a pastor, and this is really applicable to you. But to all of you that are believers believer in Christ, you're going to make decisions on where you're going to go to church. And sometimes I think we make the decision for all the wrong things. How good the espresso machine is is not the reason to pick a church. Okay? Or whether you really dig the worship and they can lay it down. Or they've got the perfect style for you and they just play it at the perfect volume level. Those are all secondary issues. Or we love the children's ministry and we're here for the children's ministry or this or that. And we, we begin to become consumers and we go to find a church that best fits our personalities and our likes and our dislikes. You know where you need to decide the group of believers that you're going to connect with and serve with is godly leaders. Because when you're joining a church with a body of believers, you're saying, I trust these group of men to lead me in the Lord, and that's a big deal. So you got to be familiar with this list. This list is for you as well to look through and go, okay, all right, okay, I, I don't see that. Then, I need to look, look somewhere else. So who are the elders in our church? All of the pastors on our pastoral staff are elders inside of our church. If you go to the church's website, pictures are listed there with their, their job descriptions if you're not, not familiar with them. We also have a board of elders. And that's made up of men in our church that, that serve. They're not on staff. I think it's very important to have elders that aren't on staff as well, that don't have a paycheck vested you know, if they stand up on, a, on an issue, they're, they're not going to lose their, their paycheck. And our board of elders, I meet with once a month. We have a prayer meeting once a month, and then we have more of a business logistical meeting where we're praying as well, but it's of a more of a, a business nature. Of that board of elders, there's one pastor that's from outside of our church. He pastors Calvary Chapel Aurora, Ed Taylor, and he's on our board of elders as well because we value to have an outside perspective completely honest i would not go to a church without elders you're you're going to be in trouble if you're going to a church that doesn't have a group of elders that are committed to serving the Lord and walking together. I also don't think it's healthy if there's only one elder. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? If there's just one guy who who is the elder, there needs to be a group of men that are working together to make decisions in the life and the body of a church. There's naturally going to be a leader inside of that group of men, but there needs to be a group of elders that are leading God's people, and that's, that's biblical. I got to speed up or I'm not going to make it. Verse 8, <clears throat> likewise deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued. Deacons are, are those who serve, and that's what the word deacon means. It means servant. We find deacons first in Acts chapter 6, Stephen and Philip were part of that first group of deacons because there was a need inside of the body of church, of the church. It freed the elders to focus on the word and prayer so that the deacons could focus on the practical things inside of the church. In our church, we don't have necessarily the official office of deacons because we're more focused on the function of deacons. We have many of you who serve inside of this body in an incredible way. And what we found is once you have a group of deacons, it becomes more about the office than the function and the service is lost. The the practical part of serving the body of Christ. But whether there's a title or there's not a title, the function so important of serving those physical needs of the body. So these are the attributes of a deacon. The first is they're to be reverent. This is their proper attitude towards God and towards men. And then they're not to be double-tongued. Anybody who's serving inside of the the body of Christ is going to see the dirt. Start serving inside of this church and you're gonna see the things that are wrong with this church. And you either be part of the solution, or you can easily become someone who's double-tongued, or you do go to the elders, you go to the pastors, and you go, Oh, I just love being here. It's so great to, to be here, and then you see some things that are wrong with the church, and you go over here and you go, Oh, I just love being here. This is the best. You know, and that's the idea here. Don't, don't be double-tongued, you know? Where, where's the appropriate place to deal with that? Where the problem is, right? Don't go over here and, and gossip about it. Not given to much wine, not greedy for money. We covered this with the elders. And then verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. They're to have faith in sound doctrine. The holding that mystery of the faith with a pure conscience before God. And verse 10, but let these also be tested. Let them serve as deacons being found blameless. So they're to have a proven track record. And verse 11, likewise their wives be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husband of one wife, ruling their children in their own house well. I think verse 11 is very applicable because anytime if someone's married, if they're serving inside of the church, it has to be a commitment that's made together as a husband and a wife. Because if it's not, it's going to divide the husband and wife. And really what verse 11 is saying is there needs to be a committed spouse where the spouse is reverent, where the spouse isn't slandering, where the spouse is self-controlled and faithful and all things. They've got to be in it together as a couple. Let me again just try to bring application. If you're married here and you serve in the church, that's a decision that you need to make together with your spouse. Because it involves time, doesn't it? It's time that's gonna take away from the family and those things, and we read of the importance of the family. So you pray about it together as a team, as a husband and wife team. Because if it just goes like this and you come home and you say, well, honey, I'm doing this. I'm, I'm gonna be gone every Sunday I'm taking on this role of the church and your spouse is like, wow, that's nice that we talked about this. Nice that we had a little meeting about this. And these are all the other aspects that are gonna struggle with this. And for it to last and be fruitful, it's a commitment that you make together and you go back and you reevaluate. Again, this encouragement to lead in the home first. So we find with the elders, but also the deacons, focusing on the physical aspects of the church that the leadership needs to start in the home. In verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons attain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is what's exciting about serving. As as you serve, good standing with the Lord, God's pleased, but also boldness in the faith. And we see that lived out in Stephen's life. He started serving tables for widows and then he died as a martyr with bold faith very articulate. One of the ways to grow, and it's one of the primary ways to grow, is serve. Serve God's people. Serving brings personal growth. There's only so far we can go in this setting, and it's so important, but this setting should launch us into things, launch us into God's call into our life, and as we serve, we obtain good standing with God and also boldness in the faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. This is chapter two and three of Timothy. I'm written these things so you know how to behave in the house of God. And this isn't brick and mortar. This is relationship with one another. This is how we behave with each other. This is a description of God's church. He says it's his house God's the architect, he's the builder, he lives there, he provides for it, and he's to be honored in the midst of his house. Isn't that incredible? We together, corporately, were the house of God. This is where God has chosen to dwell. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So now we learn how to conduct ourselves, how to behave amongst the household of God. We go on in this description of the church. It's the attributes of the church First attribute is that we're the household of God, and the second is the church of the living God. Now, we say church all the time, but do we know what it means? It's a group of people called out for a purpose. And sorry, it just fits, but Super Bowl does fit that purpose of a group that's called out for a purpose. You got a bunch of guys wearing orange and blue tomorrow that are called out for a purpose. They're a group, right? And they got a purpose. They're trying to win this silly football game. Well, as God's people, in a much greater way, we're called out for a purpose. We're called out of the world to Christ together to serve and impact a lost and dying world. We're the church of the living God. God possesses us. Jesus who died and rose, who's living, he takes possession of us, the church of the living God. And then the pillar and the ground of truth. This is huge. This is what the church is to be, is a pillar and a foundation of truth. As a world that's looking for truth, they should be able to get around God's people and hear truth and see truth being lived out. The truth being Jesus Christ. We're not the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth, but as people interact with us, they should find the truth. We have one simple job And that is, know the truth, hold on to the truth, don't compromise the truth, seek to live out the truth. We're the pillar and the foundation of truth. We're the salt and light in a lost and dying world. If you thought you didn't have a purpose, you've got a purpose. You've been called out for this purpose, to be a pillar, to be a foundation of truth. So what happens if a church compromises truth? They've lost everything, haven't they? They've lost this function of being the pillar and the foundation of truth. Guess what? Guess where this chapter ends? It ends with Jesus, and I love that. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So godliness is try harder, is do better, it's sing really loud in church. It's, no, this is the mystery of godliness, This is the way people are made godly. God was manifest in the flesh. Jesus, his incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was justified in the spirit. This doesn't mean that the spirit declared Jesus righteous. It means that the spirit was a witness of Jesus Christ. He validated Jesus Christ. This happened when Jesus was baptized. The spirit fell upon Jesus Christ. Also, Jesus was seen by angels. The angels took in the whole scene of Christ in his glory, creation, with the Father. Then Jesus is a six-pounder, a seven-pounder, born in Bethlehem in a manger, on a cross. And the angels are looking at us, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're looking at us, and they're looking at Jesus, and they're fascinated. Why would God give his son for those knuckleheads over there? Those guys over there, that group that called themselves Rocky Mountain Calvary, and he was seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles. This would be mind-blowing to the Jewish Orthodox, not thinking that God had loved the Gentiles, but Christ was preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world. Jew and Gentile, male and female, received up in glory. Why does all of this matter? Why is this a big deal? Why does it matter that there's godly men to be leading inside of the church? It's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose from the dead. He's received in glory. He's seated next to the Father. Why does it matter that there's passionate people that are serving inside of the church that may not be gifted in this way of being an elder, but they're gifted in being able to serve? Because of Jesus Christ, because Jesus has done all these things. Why is it important that a church cares about how they conduct themselves? Well, it's because of Jesus. Why does it matter that a, a church is the ground and the pillar of church? Well, it's because of Jesus. It all comes back to Jesus. We're his bride. And it's because we're his bride and through his power and his grace and his strength that we say, Lord, would you help us? to be a healthy church. Let's stand and let's pray together.